Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right, get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes, but how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com. Or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. This is On The Market, a Bigger Pockets podcast presented by Fundrise. Hey, everyone. Welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, joined today by Kathy Fecky. Kathy, how are you? I'm pretty good. I got something from my grandbaby, so I probably sound a little stuffed up. <laughs> it was worth it. Yeah, I'm sure it was worth it. Hopefully everyone's okay, though. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Rich is, did not get it. He's just working out <laughs> in the garage. Oh, good. Wow. <laughs> Lucky for him. Yeah. Well, today we have a very interesting show and guest. Uh, we have Chris Martinson joining us, which was a guest of your recommendation. Can you tell us why you were so excited to bring Chris on today? Well, I met Chris years ago, and uh, actually my husband, Rich, was a fan and a member of Peak Prosperity for years. Uh, Chris has been able to he, you know, he, he says, this is how he says it, he doesn't lean left or right, he's up or down, meaning integrity or not. And he just uses a lot of data to help try to understand what's happening and maybe some ways that we're being misled or intentionally confused. So he, he's just able to really bring that data forth and and then help uh, help at least me see what it means. Like, what do I do with this information? We we know something's wrong. Most people know something's wrong. I said, is this normal to have this much debt? You know, is this normal to have a discussion about the debt ceiling every year? <laughs> you know, so we know there's a problem and he's just really able to paint a picture that helps, helps people like me understand it better. Great. Well, we, we've already, obviously already spoken to Chris. It's a, a really fascinating interview and he has a very good way of discussing sort of the history of the Fed and monetary policy and providing some context about what 
is going on with inflation, where it might be going. And uh, it's a different perspective than we've heard on this show. So I encourage everyone to hear Chris out and let us know what you think about this episode once you've once you've heard Chris and his, you know, sometimes grim view of uh, what's going to happen in the U.S. economy over the next couple of years. But, um, you know, our goal on this show is always to bring on people who have well-informed opinions, regardless of what those opinions are, if they're well-informed, which Chris certainly is. We want to hear him out. And I thought it was a really interesting conversation. He has a gift in being able to make very, very complicated topics more understandable. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I think you guys should should buckle up. This is a really good episode. I think you're going to walk away understanding the Federal Reserve, money printing, inflation in a much better way than than maybe you have in the past. So hopefully you enjoy this conversation. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to bring on Chris Martinson from Peak Prosperity. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're trying to close on your next rental. So why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. Chris, welcome to On The Market. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Dave, Kathy, so good to be here with both of you today. Well, we appreciate your time. Can we start by just having you introduce yourself to our audience and tell us how you got into being an econo blogger? Yeah, sure. Uh, hey, my name's Chris Martinson. I have a PhD from Duke in pathology and MBA from Cornell uh, in finance. I spent a bunch of time in the corporate world. Um, I worked at Pfizer for three years. Uh, that didn't work out between us. I, it was a, not a great relationship for the both of us, um, but I <laughs> learned a lot there. And then I worked at uh, a company called SEIC, doing things back into the business side. Uh, somewhere along the way there, 2001 happened when uh, I was this genius investor with everybody. And then my portfolio got shredded and I'm a curious guy. So I started asking, like, why did this happen? I started uncovering things. Next thing you know, it's it's really consuming all of my attention. I took a sabbatical that became permanent from that job. I was vice president of a pretty large company at that time. And I started blogging. 
So at that time, I'm 42. I have three young kids. Don't take any career advice from me because I ditched all that to start a blog <laughs> uh, before there was any monetization. Like, you know, no, like it wasn't easy to make money off blogs back in this was 2005. By 2006, though, I was really curious. I started digging. I found things out about the economy that today seems so quaint. But at the time, I was like, oh, my gosh, the Fed prints money out of thin air. Five billion dollars this month. <laughs> So that was concerning. But I saw these long term unsustainable trends that was like, well, hey, there's no mathematical resolution for the entitlement programs and on and on. So that concerned me. And then I started connecting more dots and it became this thing that I started delivering horrible lectures. I'm so glad nobody listening to this came to any of them because this was me <laughs> early stage wrestling with a big giant story in church basements, talking to audiences of 80 people charts, eight hours of this guy blabbing. It was awful. Um, but eventually it condensed and it became this thing called the crash course where I connect the economy to energy and then also to the environment. And you sum it up, it's just very unsustainable. So I said, wow, this is all going to change. What would be the response? And then that became my business. So now it's a company called Peak Prosperity. It's a very large online web community we're dedicated to resilience, and the way we focus on that is around lots of different forms of capital. And so, um, yes, I'm pretty good at problem definition, but I really like the solution space because you got to make decisions, you got to do something. But really, it was just a, a passion that became a mission, and fortunately, that also became my money. So I, I'm very fortunate in this regard. Well, the Fed just raised rates again. What are your thoughts about how that will impact <laughs> the situation, banking situation and, and a looming recession. I've been a long critic of the Fed. Um, they both give too much punch bowl and then they take it away too abruptly. And so this time, this is not just a rate hike cycle. This is the most aggressive one that we've seen in the last series of them going back 20 years or so. And it's not just that we're at five and a quarter percent now, which is going to have lots and lots of impacts. It's that we were at zero uh, not that many months ago. And so this has caused all kinds of things. You know, at the time of this recording, obviously, we're seeing the regional bank failures. This was just preordained. There was nothing you could do in their situation when you were, you know, you have to match out your duration on your bond portfolio and you're getting treasuries 10 years at 1.5%, right? Or less. Uh, that That's a recipe for disaster. But we saw that same yield-seeking behavior do horrible things in the shale oil space. Obviously, it compressed cap rates like crazy in the real estate space because everybody was yield chasing. You had big, giant pensions out there who have fiduciary responsibilities on a long horizon. And when you have year after year after year of basically zero money, 0% money, what do you do? Well, you chase. And so we saw that chasing, and, and my summary of this is actually – by this famous economist from the 1800s, John Stuart Mill, who said, uh, panics do not destroy capital. They merely reveal the extent to which it has already been hopelessly betrayed. So all those deals that happened, you know, uh, on it, remember, I mean, I'm old enough to remember two years ago when we had $19 trillion of negative yielding sovereign debt. What even is that? Well, it's today's losses is what it turned out to be. So so that's the world we're in. And, and obviously, things are going to break now for a bit. Well, this is exactly why we wanted to bring you in. And Chris, you have a very sophisticated understanding of the Fed um, and monetary policy. And so I'd love to just take a little bit of a step back and talk about the exactly what you were just talking about, sort of the uh, introduction of all of this new monetary supply during the COVID era and what you sort of at a high level think the broad implications for all of that money printing, quote unquote, uh, is uh, over the long term. We're obviously seeing some impacts in the short term, but like, how do you see this playing out over the next decade or so? Well, Dave, great question. And and for everybody listening, I, I know it sounds a little wonky, a little arcane, but if if you don't understand what the Fed is up to, you're basically playing in an arena where you don't know what the rules are. So the Fed has to be tracked. It has to be watched. It's really one of the most important sources of information that you could learn about. And it's not all that tricky, right? What the Fed does is they print money out of thin air and then they distribute it. And it obviously doesn't get evenly distributed in the economy. So next question is, where's it going? Who gets it? So to actually answer your question, I'm, I'm this kind of guy. I got to rewind a little bit. 1987, we have this stock market crash. 
Alan Greenspan does something no Fed chairman had ever done before where he rode in. I'm sure he felt important. He's new in the role. He's dealing with all these Wall Street executives, you know, and they come up with this deal and and they rescued the markets. Yay. Um, instead of allowing that creative destruction to just wipe out some, you know, we had a little exuberance. People take some losses. So that was the first instance of what was called the Fed put, specifically the Greenspan put, put being an option that lays a floor below which you know that you're safe because the Fed won't allow prices to go below that level. So what happens when you do that? Well, humans being humans, uh, incentives being what they are, Wall Street said, oh, if we're going to take risks, we should do it bigly. <laughs> you know, So they did. More risks got taken on than 1994. We had this hiccup again in the corporate bond market. It was bad, but it was a hiccup. And Alan Greenspan rode in and basically removed all reserve requirements from banks. So they no longer had to keep something in reserve. We talk about the fractional reserve banking system. We had one prior to 1994. 1995 onward, no, no fraction. So banks can now do whatever they want. They can loan crazy amounts. So they did. That's called the 90s, pets.com, right? Little hiccup around 1998, long-term capital management. Oops, emergency, another bailout. And so the risk just got worse and worse. And then that gave us the 2000 crash, which is now, again, my origin story, why I'm talking to you, because that was the crash that made me wake up and go, mm, something's not right here. I better understand this game. And once I did, I realized, oh, this is here's the story I'm laying out so far. 87. Oh, no, they swerve. You know, the, the Fed has to grab the wheel and get the car back on the road. But oops, they oversteered. Now they have a bigger thing to deal with. 94, they steer the other way, you know, and then 98 back the other way. And then 2000. And then Bernanke comes along and he is the architect of everything that we have to deal with now because he gave us those 1% blowout rates forever from 2006, you know, five, six onward that gave us the housing crisis, right? Because again, you drive interest rates really low, you distort the price of money and human behaviors change on the other end of that. It's just how it works. So then we had 2008, that crash. Then they swerved the other direction. 2008, all the way from all of our history's founding, all right, from, from the very beginning till 2008, had necessitated the creation of $883 billion on the Fed balance sheet. That's how much total money stock they'd put in the system. Within just three months after Ben Bernanke takes the wheel and does this thing called quantitative easing, that had shot up to $2.4 trillion. So imagine that. All of the country's history, every bridge built, every mile of road paved, every school built, everything we ever did was $883 billion. And then in just a few months, now we have $2.4 trillion in the system, right? Okay, so now we have some heavy distortions going on. And carry on, 2019, it's still going on. And we had this uh, repo market disaster in September of 2019. Remember, 10% overnight rates. That caused the Fed to have to grab the wheel and turn the other way. But then COVID. And now we have to talk about something that takes everything I've just talked about and make it pale in comparison enormously. We went from uh, about Four trillion to nearly nine trillion on the Fed balance sheet, five trillion dollars in just three months. And it's extraordinary that that happened. Never before in history, unelected people suddenly making the decision that, you know, four trillion is the right number, five trillion is the right number. And uh, this time, that also through the PPP loans, what happened? was the federal government started to grab some of that $5 trillion. It didn't just go to Wall Street driving up stock prices and bond prices, but some of that got out to Main Street. A lot of it got out to Main Street. And now we have inflation out on the street as a consequence of that. And here we are. So there's really no easy way back from this at this point. But the story is simple. Oversteer to oversteer, larger and larger. And so the prediction I have is simple. The Fed's going to have to do this again. But next time, it's even bigger and people need to be ready for that. Chris, I have so many follow-up questions for right. you on that. But <laughs> Me too. I, before we get into it, I just want to ask a clarifying question to help our listeners understand. When you say money on the Fed's balance sheet, can you explain the significance of that? 
Sure, absolutely. So I know most of you, all your listeners are, are familiar with, with the financial statements, right? But the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve is where it keeps its assets and its liabilities and its capital. But so an asset to a bank is somebody else's debt, right? And a liability to a bank is somebody else's asset, right? So when I put money into a bank account, that's my asset, bank's liability, right? So we just have to remember banks are just on the opposite side of the transaction. So when I say the Fed's balance sheet is growing, it's putting things onto the asset side of its balance sheet, which means it went out and it bought mortgage-backed securities, it would buy treasury notes. And so when I say the Fed buys them, how does it do that? Now, you or I or anybody listening to this, when we buy something, we have to have some cash on you know, one side of our balance sheet so that we can go out and use that cash. When the Fed buys something, let's say it buys a billion dollars of mortgage-backed securities from a primary dealer. It just reaches out, informs them we're taking that billion dollars and a billion dollars in cash or you know currency shows up in, uh, in their bank account, right? Where did that cash come from? Well, it's the Federal Reserve. They get their magic keyboard out and they go clickety-clickety-click, I need a billion dollars and it goes over. And so they take the mortgage-backed security and a billion in Federal Reserve credits show up over there. It's cash. So when the Fed's expanding its balance sheet, what they're really doing is taking debt instruments off the market and pulling them on their balance sheet and pushing cash out there. And the reason they do that is they figure that when, you know, financial institutions, they're not in the business of having cash on the balance sheet. They got to do something with it. So when, if I'm the Fed and I take, Dave, I take your mortgage-backed securities from you, which are paying you, I don't know, four and a half percent, and I give you cash in a, in a zero-yielding environment, you're like, I got to do something with this, right? And that's, that's why the Fed does it. They hope that this provides stimulus. Dave's going to go out and do something with that billion in cash I just gave him. And, um, you know, maybe he's going to loan it to Kathy and she's going to do something great with it, right? So that's why they do it. They, they're just pushing cash out there, knowing that cash out in the market provides lots of liquidity and hopefully it stimulates something. Did that explain it? It does. But what does it, I mean, to me, it just sounds like one big Ponzi scheme, honestly, that you could just make money and out of thin air and then lend it and charge people for it. And anyway, that is what it seems like. But what's the impact that this massive, massive amount, I mean, some some say as much as 13 trillion uh, I, I know I've been saying seven trillion, but you know, really, how much money was created since 2020? Well, we have to look across. This is a global thing now, right? So we have to at least include the G7 central banks, and that number is close to tr- 20 trillion mm. right now. Um, and they're starting to wind it back a little bit now, but but 20 trillion excess dollars because you know, if if I took the the names off of the Nikkei, the German DAX, the FTSE, um, all these, you know, major stock indices, plus, you know, the Russell, the Dow, the S&P, the NASDAQ. If I put all those charts up on any given day, but I took the names off, only the most seasoned of pros could tell you who's who because they all trade in synchrony right now. So we have this one big global monetary system. So you can't just track what the Fed is up to anymore. You kind of also have to understand what's the ECB doing? What's the Bank of Japan doing? Because they're all actually doing the same thing, which is throwing a lot of this liquidity, which is thin air cash out into the system in the hopes that this all sort of works out and resolves. But Kathy, you're getting to the heart of this, which is that simply printing money doesn't guarantee that it's going to do what we need it to do or it's going to stimulate the right sorts of behaviors. It's a very blunt tool. You throw trillions of dollars out there, cross your fingers, and uh, guess what? A lot of it doesn't go to productive uses because um, it goes to speculative endeavors instead. And so bubbles everywhere. That's what we're in the business of seeing right now is we have multiple bubbles across multiple asset classes, and they're in danger of all being pricked at the same time. But that's what the central banks do. They blow bubbles, they prick them, they clean up the damage. Wash, rinse, repeat. Where do you see the biggest bubbles and, and the biggest concern? Well, I mean, we obviously had huge bubbles in in, in the so-called crypto space, um, which is actually digital uh, digital forms of, of currencies, right? So remember, they were like, you know, even, even, even co- coins that were started as a joke, you know, suddenly were worth, you know, tens if not hundreds of billions <laughs> and all of that. So that's an example, right? Um, Remember, you know, I'm old enough to remember the, the 2000 internet craze, right? Which was 
we had all these strange explanations. So a bubble is anywhere you have a strange explanation. Like, oh, it's eyeballs, you know? Oh, you you know, you don't understand, you know, the, this thing is worth more because X. And X is a really weird reason you don't totally understand. Um, so we saw it there. Uh, certainly we saw it. In, uh, inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. That's what Milton Friedman said. I believe him. Uh, and so you see inflation where the money goes. So for a long time, we, they said our inflation was low because they measured it in terms of the price of milk and gasoline and things like that. But the money went to Wall Street. So what did we see? Right there during that whole run up through till 2020, we saw trophy properties going exceedingly expensive, right? We saw Gulfstream 650s. You couldn't get your hands on one large waiting list, you know, huge waiting list for giant yachts. Art auctions were going crazy. Large diamonds and other gems went nuts. Um, those are all places that that people who got that money dumped on them. That's what they buy. So we saw tons of inflation, but we have to include we saw inflation in the stock and bond markets. At the same time, we saw price earnings yields go go just through the roof. These these super high price earnings, meaning we're paying a lot of money for low earnings in stocks. We also saw bonds yielding. Less than zero negative yielding, which would, you know, bonds are up, prices and yields go opposite directions. So as the yields go down, the price goes up. So prices going up is inflation. So we saw huge inflation, stocks, bonds, many classes of real estate, uh, Bitcoin, trophy property. It went everywhere. It was one of the more massive moments of inflation that we've, we've anybody's lived through. I mean, some people are saying it's a, it's going to be a recession of the wealthy. Because people who could just blow money on art, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, or, or do you, will it trickle down to everybody? Okay. Now we're down to it. Um, so there's only <laughs> two paths, okay? There's only two paths left. One, we go down a deflationary path, right? And in deflation, these are punishing. Nobody likes them. It causes austerity. But really, it's the holders of bonds get crushed and the holders of equities uh, often get crushed as well. That's a really unpopular road to take because nobody likes it. And but in particular, who tends to hold all those those bonds and stocks, right? Well, tends to be the Federal Reserve, its employees, its friends, its neighbors, its relatives, and the entities they hope to go and, and work for someday. Um, it, it's a, it, that's a that only happens when it breaks on them and they can't control it. So that's a very rare event. Alternatively, they have we have to inflate this away, right? And so inflation is always the preferred route. That's the direction they want to go, all their statements to the contrary. And inflation's awesome because everybody has to chip in for that, right? It steals from every single bank account. So if I could, inflation is often characterized as like this mysterious thing, like a, a comet was an omen to the Romans. We're like, oh, there's this inflation. Where'd it come from, you know? <laughs> uh, but it's an act of policy. In inflation, what it does is it's not the price of things going higher. We got to flip that. Inflation is the value of your money going down. So if I have money in a bank account yielding today 4%, but inflation's 8%, I'm going to lose 4% purchasing power. Who took it? Where did it go? Because purchasing power is a real thing. It evaporated, apparently. It didn't. It was stolen away and it was taken as an act of policy. So inflation is always the preferred policy because it nibbles at everybody but it helps those who are most highly indebted, which includes the federal government, get out from under that. And so that's what they always try to do. The problem today is that we no longer exist in that unipolar world where the United States prints and the world has to take it. There's this extraordinary set of developments over in what's happening in the so-called BRICS countries who are gaining a lot of power. And so we're at an extraordinary moment of it's a regime change from unipolar dollar-based world to multipolar. And that's a huge transition that, that has a lot of potential implications. And well, don't you think all the inflation and money printing is sort of fueling the BRICS countries to try and become and establish themselves as a more uh, popular reserve currency because they don't want to deal, you know, have the negative impacts of monetary policy of the United States? Absolutely. that That's part of it, um, because otherwise they just have to absorb whenever we decide to export our inflation. You know, their choice was eat it, you know. So that's not popular, but we can actually date this, Dave. We can put this to a moment. February 28th, 2022. 
Four days after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the United States comes forward and says, oh, we're seizing Russia's sovereign reserves, which proves that they were neither sovereign nor actual reserves. This was actually one of the biggest moments in our financial histories where basically the United States said, we don't even care if you're a nation state. We don't care if you came by your money. Honestly, we decide we're going to freeze that and seize that, right? Not unlike what Canada did with those people who who donated, I think, quite legitimately and legally to the truckers uh, movement that was happening up there. When they seized people's bank accounts, they contravened every known rule and law. And, and those are two warning shots across the bow that if you're a BRIC country, you're like, I don't want to be exposed to that. The United States can just be unhappy with me someday and take everything that I've worked for, traded, honestly dealt with, saved, however you came by it. That was the moment. And so that really put the rockets on that particular development. They've been kvetching about, about things for a long time, but that was the moment. And I'm astonished at how fast this is actually beginning to unravel here. Yeah, it seems like almost every day there's there's some news about it. Um, but it, I, I would imagine the research I've done about it seems like it they have high intent to do it, but it might take a little while for them to really establish themselves. But if they intend to do it, it will probably continue to move in that direction. Yeah, I mean, they're doing well. So there was another warning shot, which was not only did we seize uh, Russia's sovereign reserves, but we also cut off their banks from what's called the SWIFT system which is how banks do interbank, interbank messaging to settle. And if you're cut off from that, you, you can't be part of the banking system. So they developed their own. And so there's actually already um, China and Russia are using a different system. So I, this is it's really hard to convey. But but the United States and a lot of Western interests, we had extraordinary power because of having that financial position. And that just all got undercut and taken away. And I kind of I not I'm kind of. I wish we'd had legit debates about, like, is this a good idea or not? This feels way beyond what the executive office ought to be able to just unilaterally decide to do. We should have had legit debates in Congress and the Senate. Like, do we really want to do this? Because here are the possible consequences. And editorially, I feel like this administration and current crop of D.C. folks, they seem to be really bad at understanding that there are causes and then effects. Like, I do this, then that happens. They seem to be blissfully unaware of what those impacts might be. But but this is really a huge development that's happening, and it's happening faster than I thought it could have. And so we're just going to have to watch that. It could unwind. Uh, this could go faster than people think. And Chris, I mean, I've known you for a long time, and you've talked about this and warned about this for, like you said, for decades now. And here we are. Um, and here we are. So what would be the impact uh, if – if more and more countries um, went this way and stopped using the, the dollar as the reserve currency? It's huge. So August 15th, 1971, the United States, we were still through Bretton Woods tied to this gold standard. That was a little inhibiting. We didn't like that. So Nixon announced temporary suspension of the gold window and it's turned out to be permanent, obviously, as all things government temporary teens seem to be. But what are you going to do then? So uh, what's the dollar backed by? We, we'd already just, you know, violated that Bretton Woods agreement. And so what happens? Inflation's raging. This evil genius, Kissinger, comes along and enshrines something in 73 with a deal with Saudi Arabia saying, oh, if you sell oil, why don't you just trade it in dollars? In fact, we enshrined this thing called the petrodollar where all oil traded anywhere in the world was traded in dollars. So country A, B, Z. They all needed dollars to, to buy oil and everybody needs oil, right? So, so it was this beautiful thing and that's what's in the business of unwinding right now is this thing called the petrodollar. And it's as simple as this. Does oil have to be traded in dollars or not? Because if it is and you're a country that wants to buy oil, you're Chile, say, you have to have dollars, which means somehow you have to run a positive trade balance with the U.S., which means the United States gets to run this horrifically large trade deficit, which we've done forever, right? That when that unwinds, there's approximately last I saw about 10 trillion US dollars that are parked offshore because of that petrodollar business. All right. What could what could what could threaten the petrodollar? <laughs> oh, Saudi Arabia just a couple days ago announced they want to officially join the BRICS. They've already inked deals with China to give them preferential access to their oil. They're going to trade it directly in yuan. So the petrodollar is already under attack. This isn't like it's going to happen or when. It's, it's happening. So if that happens, here's the simple summary. 
all these dollars floating offshore, many of them no longer are needed by their host country. So what do they do with them? You either sell them so the dollar starts to fall, or you say, maybe I should buy something with these dollars while I still can. So the point here is that anything that trades internationally that we might want will suddenly become more expensive. But what's actually happening is there's too many dollars out there chasing them. So it's the dollar losing value. So prediction would be within a few years, we would see hideously high internationally traded oil prices in dollars, um, most commodities, uh, anything that that's really traded in, in bulk by the US, which is almost everything at this point, because we offshored our manufacturing. You know, we, we gave that away. That'll come back, but that's a long, slow process. And so uh, that that would be my prediction is we'll just see things become anything that isn't nailed down. You can put on a boat gets more expensive. I want to switch gears a little bit, Chris. This has been super interesting, but I want to ask you about a couple of recent uh, events and just get your take on them. Um, the first one is the debt ceiling. Uh, the Janet Yellen came out and said that they expect that the, the Treasury could default as soon as June curious how you view this entire situation. What are the potential implications of a U.S. default? Well, the implications are so dire, it won't happen. How many times have we been down this path, right? So, oh, no, looming debt ceiling discussion. I like your confidence because I'm scared. Yeah, 99% <laughs> chance this thing, we, the debt ceiling gets raised, right? Um, and you've even seen maybe they, they just started floating like this, this idea of like, we could print a trillion dollar coin, oh you know? Oh, my God, this coin idea. <laughs> at, at any rate, Bottom line is there'll be some brinksmanship. We'll get there. Um, there'll be some concessions by the Republicans, which won't really do anything. We are facing a really huge sea of red ink in the United States for the next 10 years at least. And a recession, when one comes, will only make that more extreme. So lots and lots of printing. And uh, that's that. there's no other way around this. Because a debt default, if one did happen – Right. There's two kinds, two ways that could happen. First is what's called a technical default. The government actually misses a payment or two, but it's not it's not permanent. It's just, you know, these bonds that were due Monday, we had to pay them on Wednesday or something like that. Um, so that would be a technical default that would trigger lots of chaos. But if they actually went into a full blown default, meaning, hey, we can't pay you back the total amount. You know, if you had a billion dollars of treasury bonds, we can we can only afford 800, you know, million or something like that. That's chaos. Uh, all the analyses I've seen, you know, that doubles unemployment right away. It crashes all kinds of, of things. It's, it would be that's literally a, a lights out kind of a, a financial moment. So it won't happen. But the alternative to that is we're going to see lots more printing. And without some sort of handcuffs that would prevent Washington from just spending more and more and more because that's all they know how to do. That's their muscle memory. There's nobody in there that even knows what a balanced budget even might look like, right? So we have that ongoing. And then as well, the Congressional Budget Office in December of 22 came out and said, oh, hey, you know that Social Security lockbox, <laughs> the, tr the trust fund, which there's nothing in, right? It's literally it's literally a three-ring three -ring binder with, with a bunch of IOUs from the Treasury in it, right? Even that goes to zero by 2033. And so the analysis they ran said, oh, either we have to cut benefits to retirees by you know some horrifying percent or, or we're going to have to raise payroll taxes to 18%, 17.9%, right, from their current 12%, 12.6%. So that would be – so one of those two or some combination, more payroll taxes, less going to retirees and all of that. So So – these are all the things that have been building. They've been building a long time. It's why, Kathy, Dave, I take this long term. You have to understand. That's why I have to rewind to 1995, because it's not like we just stumbled into a series of accidents. Last year, we made some mistakes. How do we get out? This has been decades in the making, and it's the summary is simple. People like a free lunch. Washington wanted to both conduct wars and cut taxes, and we wanted to live beyond our means. It's it's a very old story. It's why households get in trouble. Um and so we have to figure out what we're going to do. The unfortunate part is you, I'm sure your listeners know now there's a, another angle to this story, which is now they're talking about these central bank digital currencies as a, as a means to sort of deal with this situation. But the current system is absolutely insolvent, not bankrupt. Bankruptcy is a, a legal proceeding. It's insolvent. The, the liabilities and, and assets, they just don't line up at this point in time. So um, what, if people ask me for like, Chris, I'll give you 10 seconds. 
what do we need to know? I say, listen, you just have to resolve the answer to this one question. Who's going to eat the losses? Bankers don't want it to be them. Congress doesn't want to have to. Everybody's sort of scrambling in this story, which is why it's so essential to have this macro context, because if you can see that there's this game being played, which is about who's going to eat the losses, there are ways to position yourself to not be, in Texas terms, the sucker at the table. (laughs) You know, you got to figure out what you're going to do about that. Oh, that was going to be my next question. How do we not be the transition? (laughs) How do we not be the sucker at the table? I mean, where do you how do you protect yourself? Where do you put your money today? This is a great question. So for financial capital, and again, I talk about eight forms of capital as being important to your resilience going forward, but financial capital is always where we start. If you don't have financial freedom, all the rest are kind of much harder to accomplish. So this story has been played out over and over again throughout history. We can see it in Zimbabwe. We can see it in you know the Austrian Empire, 1918, through, through their punishing inflation. We can see it in Venezuela. Same story, hard assets. So let me rewind a bit. So 1918 to 1923, one of the more punishing rounds of inflation in Austria, right? We saw, you know, people in Germany carrying their wheelbarrows full of worthless marks and all of that. And, you know, how did that happen? And it's funny when you read books about it, they call, oh, there was this great wealth destruction. You know, all these people got wiped out, right? No, the people who got wiped out had their money in German bonds at that point in time. They had their money in increasingly worthless currency. The actual wealth of the nation. So here's where we have to flip our thinking. Wealth is not money. It's a marker for wealth. Real wealth is land, trees, soil, houses, productive factories. It's tangible, real things. The rest of it's just sort of paper claims on that. And it's wonderful, except when that blows up. So everybody who's fully exposed, like if you can, if you're one of these people, if you're listening and you have a hundred percent of your wealth is tied up in things that you can find on a computer screen only, right? Um, it's exposed. So I'm over here saying, listen, when, when the dust settled though, after that whole Weimar explosion, they said, ah, these middle-class, so much wealth was destroyed. That's not what happened. Wealth was transferred. There was still just as many farmland acres, factories, roads, hotels, as there was before the inflation is after. Who owned them? Now that changed. And so that's what we're watching happening even now in, in watching, um, you know, J.P. Morgan picking up, you know, the, the bank assets of First Republic for basically pennies on the dollar, right? That same wealth transfer is about to happen. So the way you protect yourself is you make sure you have a significant portion of your wealth on this side of the wealth transfer line which is the productive asset side. So hard assets, gold, silver, oil. I love oil. I love natural gas here for other reasons that are, you know, about supply and demand. I love productive real estate. Um, and I, I love, I love, well, I'm, I'm talking to you from a, a small farm. So these are the kinds of things I, I, I love most. Productive real estate. What What's productive real estate? Like factories? Or what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, there's any, so imagine... There'll, there'll be some there'll be some carnage for a while, um, you know, obviously, and, and the dust will settle. And guess what? We'll have an economy uh, again that we'll pick up out of this. Like right now, as we're speaking, in Leavenworth Supermax prison, there's an economy running. People will, will always have an economy. That's that's not an issue. Um, the question is, is what form is it going to take? And people are always going to need if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and at the bottom, you've got warmth and safety and security and food and shelter and things like that. Those never go out of style. Right. Um, and so so productive real estate to me are it's the means of production. Right. So people are always going to need we're always going to need to eat. We're always going to need to stay warm. We're always going to need houses to live in. This will always be true. Um, so. So those are the the places where again it's it's um to rewind a bit when I said you know there's there were stories about certain crypto assets that you know were very hard to penetrate um or the idea that like Tesla wasn't a car company it's a data company and I didn't quite understand what that meant you know I just default to if you know the kiss <laughs> can can I understand it like like can I actually understand what the value of this of this asset is um, and how it delivers value to other humans. It, it's it's like that. So um, I am busy buying as fast as I know how uh, trees. I love forest land right now. I love farmland right now. Um, there's certain places where I, I think if you just look at just from a real estate standpoint, if you're looking at the migration patterns of where people are going, 
like you have to get back down to the fundamentals around that. So, you know, I, you know this far better than I do. The migration patterns are really powerful right now. And there are various uh, localized supply demand imbalances that are still with us and will be with us for a long time. So it's at that level that I'm talking about productive real estate. Chris, you consider diversifying assets outside the United States too? Like if the U.S. is particularly at risk, would you buy bonds in different countries or real estate in different countries? Or how do you look at that? Uh, I do. I, I don't have real estate footprints in other countries at this point in time. I've looked at it. I've studied it. I couldn't quite bring myself to pull the trigger on that. And the reason for that is um, I'm unsure what happened. Uh, th- this next if this gets out of control and they and things really like devolve for a bit because you know the United States overdoes it and and the dollar takes a crash or something it was unclear to me how um how that would play out for me as a as a stranger in a strange land for instance um there's that however i am hedging my bets so i do have gold and silver stored in vaults um through various vaulting operations and i have those parked in various jurisdictions um as a means of hedging my bets at this point in time so I do that, but I haven't really tried to figure out how to uh, invest in emerging economies or anything like that because everybody's tied to the dollar system in ways that are really hard to analyze. Um, emerging economies that might, you know, these are the BRICS nations in many respects. They have about five trillion dollars, Dave, of, of dollar-denominated external debt. What does that mean, right? Um, I don't know. So, <laughs> so what I, I spent a whole month down in Buenos Aires, 2016. It was a lot of fun. Um, even then it was pretty crime ridden. People said, you know, you take your phone and, and you turn towards the wall and you hold it tight, you know, while you make a call, um, and, uh, never leave it on your, even if you're eating at a five-star restaurant, you would never leave your phone on the table because somebody will just, you know, grab it and off they go. Uh, so crime was, was a thing then, but when I was there officially, it was 16 pesos to the dollar unofficially on the street, it was 18 I was just talking with a, a friend from there yesterday. It's 490 mm-hmm. and the whole place yeah, is, really, is really wow. – your money is your social glue. When the glue lets go, lots of things break. So I know a lot of people who moved to Argentina under the idea that, hey, this is a good, safe, very European-centric um, South American country with, you know, that, that we could maybe make a, a second home in. And now I'm looking at that going, that, that's – it's so hard to predict how these things are going to turn out. But – 490 to the dollar they, they're suffering down there with all the all the attendant social ills that come with that all right chris you've given us a lot given me a lot to think about i'll tell you that uh is there anything else you think that our uh listeners should know in navigating the the current economy well abs- you got to keep your eye on the big picture watch these things they play it's going to play out over a long period of time um but i do think that it's time for people to consider their resilience. And, you know, this is something, so that's all we've done a lot of sort of problem definition. It's clearly happening and, and, you know, mistakes were made and now we have to get through this. Now, I I don't believe at all in just hunkering down and waiting for like to be hit with a rolled up newspaper. It's, it's, there's, this is going to be a period of time to flip this story when generational wealth is lost and made. And the dividing line is going to be the people who can see this clearly coming. We're going to have to take really bold risks. We're going to have to make decisions with imperfect information you know we're gonna make some mistakes hopefully you know fewer mistakes than than successes but i'm absolutely convinced that this is a time when massive wealth is going to be transferred and to get on the right side of that you just have to you have to see where that's that's coming um and secondarily though you know if there are these other forms of capital that we talk about your social capital super important right not just how many people you know at all but how well do you know them and what kind of relationships do you really build with them this is quick quick aside on that um i always seem to have an aside so zimbabwe 1997 a, a zimbabwe dollar actually had a value by 1998 it had almost no value by the year 1999 you could find these 100 trillion dollar notes right one of the most punishing rounds of inflation ever. And there were people in Zimbabwe who saw it coming. They got ready. They bought gold. They stored some food. They did all those responsible things. Yeah. Um, those efforts, of you, there's only so much food you can store. So that stuff all ran out like in a year, year and a half, you know. But this was a nine-year burn on their currency. So Philip Haslin goes in, asks the question after the fact and says, that's author, and says, well, who did well? Like some people did well. And the dividing line between those who really thrived and those who survived or didn't 
was their social network. That was the one variable. It was like, if you know somebody, you can always find what you need, right? Back to that idea of supermax prison. There are people conducting business, right? So it was, it's really, it's your social network. So my advice here is this is like, get your social networks, you know, really, you know, if you haven't been, get back in, attend church and get to know people and, you know, attend events and really get to know your, your closest neighbors and all of that, because um, this is, I think, going to be a huge dividing line for a lot of folks. And, and um, uh, it's really important. Another big one, I'll just one more out of the eight, um, your emotional capital. Super important. Let, let's imagine you have all the money you need and you got good friends and you got, you know, you know, a lot of skills and all these other forms of capital. But if you fall apart, like if you if you get that tunnel vision and you can't like even operate during the crisis, this is going to be all the rest is for naught. So this is a great time for people to figure out how to take that deep breath, really clear out. If you find anxiety about all this stuff, you got to find the source of that, clear it out and figure out how you're going to operate. And if you can't find somebody who can, because there's people out there who are fast adjusters and other people aren't. So this is just entrepreneurship. What are you good at? What are you not good at? If you're not good at fast adjusting, find somebody who is, who can figure out how to pull the trigger and, and move when everybody else seems frozen, because that's going to be, that's a critical determinant of success. It's sort of a, it's why people make it to the SEAL team and they don't. You need people who can make quick, good enough decisions under highly imperfect information sets. And that's the world we're in right now. Oh, and plant a garden. <laughs> I knew you'd end with that. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Um, it's been a, a fascinating conversation. If people want to learn more about you and follow your work, uh, should they do that at peakprosperity.com or where's the best place to connect with you? Yeah, that's the best place. So, you know, I've got YouTube presence and, and I'm on Twitter and all that, but you peakprosperity.com is where we have the community coming together. Remember I told you I built this thing called the crash course and I was like insane about doing that. That was problem definition. I have the same level of insanity today about connecting people with other people. We find each other virtually so that we can find each other in the real world. That's the true power of the internet today. So that's what I'm pouring all of my team's effort into is figuring out how to create really just the best number one online resilience community we can so that people can find each other. Because again, your social connections are going to be your, uh, a very important determinant going forward. So that's who I am. That's what I do. I connect dots, but I want to connect people. So that's who we are. And you find us at peakprosperity.com. All right. Thanks again, Chris. We'll hopefully see you again soon. All right. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Kathy. Kathy, what do you think about our conversation with Chris? Well, it's a little depressing, really, but it is a, a strong dose of reality. These are conversations I've had for years because right about the same time, early 2000s, I also discovered kind of this whole banking system and it, it just seemed really unfair to me and I've been aware of it. But at the same time, you just have to you just had to figure out how to survive in that kind of environment where there's things out of your control. Yeah, it's I hope he's wrong. But <laughs> um, yeah, I think he, he makes some really compelling, interesting points about um, just the level of, of money printing and what's going on. And, you know, I, I, I don't know as much about this as Chris, so I can't like specifically agree or refute some of the points he said. But I think the the thing that really stuck with me was this image of the Fed just like pulling their car all the way to one side of the road and then all the way to the back. Because that is just so clearly happening. It's just like, we're sending the economy too far in one direction. We're sending it too far in the other direction. Honestly, I didn't really understand it went all the way back to 1987. Um, and so like we've been in this cycle where we're correcting, then overcorrecting, then going back. And, uh, you know, again, I don't know the, the specifics as well as Chris does, but that type of scenario that just spells does not smell good to me. Yeah, it's been a question I've had for a long time is we've sure printed a lot of money, but what, you know, where has it gone? And has it really improved our society? Has it has it improved things? It sometimes mm -hmm. just feels more like that investment you put money in and then the the uh the person in charge of the investment just spend it on their plane, you know, or a really nice right. dinner. It's like, where did it go? Did we get new buildings, new roads, you know, or did it just go to somebody who, like he said, bought, bought a new jet. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's what you see when these super low interest rate environments is like luxury goods, people who already have money do really well. Yeah. You know, people who own assets tend to do extremely well at the expense of people who are up and coming or just working, a, you know, an honest living. Um, and so that's obviously has really negative implications. And unfortunately, I, it doesn't seem like there's an easy fix. Yeah, this is partly why my mission has been to help people increase their financial understanding, because it really comes down to voters voting, you know, voter, you know, we vote with our money, we vote with our wallets, we obviously vote, vote for the people who make these decisions. So we have to take on that responsibility of really understanding what's going on so that we can vote properly. Um, you know, if you're if you're wanting certain things that for the government to pay for, you know, who pays for that ultimately, and, and unfortunately, um, there's a disconnect there where people get really excited, you know, getting these checks and, and so forth. And, and, uh, what you turn around and go, Oh, but now I'm paying for it through inflation or I'm paying for it potentially in higher taxes. So there's no such thing as free money. We're, we're going to pay for it in the end. Yeah. And it seems like, it seems like though, like at this point, how do you even turn off the spigot? Even like, regardless of Paul, like, is there a policy? solution to it? Well, I think it, you know, people like to think that certain parties, political parties are better financially, but it's, it's all of them love to spend money. Uh, politicians just spend money and they can. Yeah. Uh, so is there a solution? You know, I, I think, I think Chris said it, they're just going to keep printing more money to cover up uh, the issues and to pay the debt and to pay for all these things that we promised are um, the constituents of America. Yeah. So how do you operate in that environment? And I think we're all really aware. I talk about this a lot. If we know inflation is a way of life, well, you better buy things that inflate, right? That, mm -hmm. that, that, uh, that you, you better buy the right kinds of things or invest in the things that you know will be worth more and that will be affected by that inflation in a positive way. Again, of course, real estate. All you have to do is look at charts and see that it just keeps going up because it's an, a hard asset that people need and want. Um, farmland, you know, that's really, I, I hear that a lot. I wouldn't know what to do with farmland if I bought it, but I know that a lot of wealthy people are. <laughs> yeah, people seem to do that. Yeah. Well, luckily, uh, Jane, my partner, likes to plant gardens. So I, oh, I good. got that one covered. Yeah. Wonderful. I think it's a hobby, though, not as an inflation hedge. <laughs> she just enjoys it, but at least we'll have some carrots. <laughs> <laughs> at least you'll have some carrots. And that's what Chris, he ends every single session, every single talk with plant a garden. Plant a garden because there are things you can control and you, you can plant a garden. You can grow food so that, you know, you at least have, you know, find ways to have control of the situation. And that's just one of them. I'm terrible at growing food though. So I'm one to talk. <laughs> me too. Just good at eating it. Yeah, me too. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kathy. This was a lot of fun and thanks for bringing Chris on. Um, if anyone wants to connect with you, where should they do that? Realwealth.com is my company. And then of course on Instagram, Kathy Fedke. I've got the blue check mark now, but it's, I guess anyone can get it. So it's really I'm not so that jealous. special. I can't get it. I don't <laughs> understand. I think it's because I'm in the Netherlands. It's like not available here. Yeah. I think in America, you just now have to prove your identity and then you get the blue check. But I like it because at least you'll know it's me and, and not a fake. I know. I can't get it. I was like using a VPN to try and like show that I was in the United States. <laughs> it did not work. Uh, well, we'll just have to deal with the fakes of you. The, the most recent being you in a bikini, which was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so if you see an Instagram fake of Dave in a bikini, it, it may or may not be him. Yeah. Yeah. You'll, you'll never know. You'll never know if it was real or not. But I am at the Data Deli. No underscores. No extra letters or anything just the data deli if you want to follow me there but thanks again for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode we always appreciate feedback from you to either kathy or myself you can always send that to us and we will see you next time for the next episode of on the market on the market is created by me dave meyer and kaylin bennett produced by kaylin bennett editing by joel esparza and onyx media Research by Pooja Jindal, and a big thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show on the market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies.
Investing in small multifamily properties is probably the most popular niche in the entire Bigger Pockets community, and there's a good reason for that. You can put as little as 3.5% down and own up to four units. So just think about that for a second. You can house hack where you live in one of the units, but in addition to having a place to live, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month. You have four kitchens and bathrooms that you could add value to to build equity. You could also turn one or more of the properties into a short-term rental or a medium-term rental. And all of this, what I'm describing here, is just one transaction. But of course, the question is, where do you find one of these small multifamily properties that you can afford? Which markets and which deals are best for you? How about after you close? How do you manage it? Optimize it. Keep scaling and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants. These are all great questions. And luckily for you, they're going to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient, great strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. I'll see you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.